Welcome to Pazina Perspectives, brought to you by Pazina Investment Management, a global value manager known for our commitment to fundamental research and disciplined value investing. Today's episode focuses on the attractive valuations of small cap stocks across the globe. Featuring portfolio managers Evan Vox and Matt Ring, speaking with our co-head of North American Distribution, Valerie Arnold. This podcast is presented by Pazina Investment Management, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and is intended for institutional investors and financial professionals only. The views expressed reflect the current views of Pazina as of the date hereof and are subject to change. There is no guarantee that any projection, forecast, or opinion in this material will be realized. Past performance is not indicative of future results. In the UK, this podcast is for professional investors only. This marketing communication is presented by Pazina Investment Management Limited, which is an appointed representative of ACA Marabella. ACA Marabella is authorized and regulated by the FCA. Welcome to Pazina Perspectives. I'm Valerie Arnold, and I'm joined today by my colleagues, Edmund Fox and Matt Ring. They are both co-portfolio managers of our global small cap strategy. In addition, Evan is a portfolio manager in our U.S. small cap strategy, and Matt Ring is not only director of research, but also a portfolio manager on our international small cap strategy. I would like to start off our discussion with Matt. Um, Matt, I know we recently wrote a commentary in our Q1 newsletter that discusses the attractive valuations we are seeing in small cap stocks, both in the U.S. and globally. What makes small cap investing so compelling generally? Yeah, it's a really exciting time in terms of the valuation opportunity for small cap investing right now. Um, But before we get into the exact opportunity right now, I want to talk a little bit about the asset class generally. Um, So as deep value investors, we're constantly scouring the globe for undervalued or underappreciated stocks. And small cap investing gives us a chance to add another layer to that, which is often undiscovered stocks. So there's three things we really love about uh, this asset class. First, it's really strong long-term returns. And so whether or not you're just looking at small caps versus large caps, or if you're looking at value within small caps, uh, they have superior historical returns. Secondly, the diversity. The small cap universe has some of the highest company-specific risk in any portfolio. And that's really great for portfolio construction where we can put together a really diverse portfolio of bets. When we also move outside the United States, We get exposure to over 20 different countries, uh, different currencies, economies, and market cycles. And third, it's a less crowded space to be investing in. So despite these attractive characteristics, there's only about one small cap active manager for every eight large cap active managers out there in the market. So even though there's sort of unique risks with any asset class, and this one is no different, such as some of the short-term volatility, these elements give a disciplined research team the ability to outperform over the long term. So Matt, you mentioned that small caps have been a source of superior returns historically. How has that played out in the past? So when we look at the data, and we have data going back to about mid-70s on this, uh, small cap stocks globally have beaten the large cap cohort by over 100 basis points per year. And then when we look at the value style within small caps globally, they've beaten that style neutral small cap index by over 300 basis points per year in that same time period. So small caps has been an area of the market that has delivered outperformance for over 50 years. 
turning it over to Evan. Evan, why do you think small caps have outperformed over time? Well, like Matt said before, small cap investors are really looking in an area for undiscovered stocks. And it's just a much bigger universe, some three times the size of the universe of uh, large cap companies. And there's just underfollowed names. So when you look at the small cap names, some 28% of them have three or fewer brokerage firms or analysts that are following them. Some of that has really been exacerbated over the last 15 years. When you look back at just the quality getting worse, some of this is tied to MIFID and just the economics of the investment banks that are looking at it. And it actually creates an opportunity for us. When you compare that, only about 2% of large cap companies are covered by three or fewer analysts. So just the pure number of people that are looking at this creates that opportunity from just not really understanding the economics. Uh, it shouldn't be a surprise that you have more valuation distortions that come through with this thinner coverage, more uncertainty in the earnings estimates. And another feature of this is that small cap stocks end up being less correlated. So less reliable information leads to bigger moves in the stock price. And just the correlation between large cap and small cap uh, is lower than you'd think. The five-year rolling correlations, for example, of the MSCI world small cap versus large cap is less than 80%. So you're getting some portfolio diversification there. So it sounds like the larger opportunity set in small cap really leads to you know, a better uh, profile for investors. You've outlined small cap stocks historically had a lot of success. What's the outlook for small caps today? Is there a runway for future outperformance? That's why we're talking about this today, Valerie. Because even though small cap stocks have recovered some 80% from their COVID lows, on both an absolute and a relative basis versus large cap, they're actually very attractive. When you look at uh, the MSCI World Small Cap Index, it's near a 20-year low on uh, price-to-earnings ratio. And this shouldn't be a surprise, but when you look back through history, the forward returns when you invest in periods of, of low price-to-earnings ratios is much better than when valuations started at a higher starting point. What's also notable is that even though small cap stocks are near a low multiple versus their history, large cap stocks are slightly above average. And so if you look at that relative difference between small cap valuations and large cap valuations, small caps are at about a 30% discount. If you looked at the 20-year average, it would average more of a 5% discount. So that's a pretty big gap. When you then look within the small cap universe, valuation spreads are particularly wide. So this is looking at the cheapest small cap stocks versus the most expensive ones, and we're the 93rd percentile of how wide that is. So even though value has outperformed growth since the start of 2022, it's still a very sizable gap there. So putting it together, not only are small cap stocks cheap versus large cap, but value is particularly cheap relative to growth within that. So it's a very attractive starting point as we look at it today. Yeah, and I would just add on that the starting points, just like Evan said, really matter. Um, but this isn't just about buying companies cheap on price-to-book value. We think in this space, and the data release shows, that active management really matters. Um, so what the data that we've been able to pull is that the excess return of the best quartile of small-cap managers has exceeded that of the large-cap managers by over 140 basis points, if we look at the five-year rolling returns over the past 20 years. And that means that there's more outperformance or more alpha available to active managers in this space uh, than in other areas of the market. 
But the manager selection is really critical because if you look at the worst quartile of small cap managers, they've actually underperformed the market by 160 basis points. Um, now, part of that is a lot of the things that Evan and I have discussed about in this already. It's a little bit undiscovered. It's kind of hard. It's not very well followed by analysts. Even analysts that do cover it, our earnings estimates are sort of all over the place. The dispersion is much greater, about twice as large as those in the large cap space. Um, but so to be able to come at this and to, to look at these universes, you have to have a pretty unique team. And this is where I think we've got some, some advantages here at Pazina. So sort of two things. These are big universes, so 22,000, 3,000 stocks in each of these universes. And at Pazina, we've got a disciplined, repeatable process that takes quantitative tools combined with the bottom-up fundamental research to narrow these large universes down into concentrated portfolios. And secondly, Pazina has one, one team of global investors organized by industry that is looking for value around the globe no matter what the market cap is. So the team that is looking for these undiscovered opportunities isn't only looking at small caps, but also their large cap competitors, suppliers, or customers. And that's a really powerful asset when you're investing in this space. So you presented a lot of compelling arguments for why to invest in small cap. I'm just curious, is there something um, misunderstood about small cap? You know, why, why do you think um, the market tends to underallocate? You know, it's interesting because I do think there's a perception that small cap companies are just subscale competitors to larger peers. In reality, most of the time, we're looking at leaders in niche businesses where it's just tiny markets, but one or two players may dominate them. Our fundamental research process really helps us understand the natures of these businesses that we're invested in. And so if someone would look at our list of names today that we own, you'd often have where the average person would only understand the names or recognize the names of one or two of the stocks, but they're probably actually touching many of the products or the businesses in ways that they would never understand. For example, we own companies including Masonite and Jeldwin, who are a global duopoly of interior molded doors. Who would think that two players really dominate that market globally, but they do. Same way Rev Group makes more than half the ambulances in the U.S., we have a company, Varex, which is a leading manufacturer of x-ray tubes that are used in x-rays and CAT scans. We've gone to the facility where they make this, and they have former seamstresses that are actually uh, putting the filaments into these bulbs. This is a highly technical process. There's only a few companies in the world that can do it, and one is a tiny company that we're invested in. In another example, we previously owned a company that had 75% market share in mailboxes in the U.S., who would ever think that mailboxes are dominated by one player? But when it's a small enough market, it doesn't make sense for a bigger company to go into that. I don't know, Matt, do you want to touch on similar stories outside the U.S.? Sure. I mean, yeah, one of the companies that I'd highlight is uh, Sabre Insurance in the U.K. Um, this is one we wrote about in the quarterly newsletter. Um, it's at a, just to take a step back at an industry level, they write motor insurance in the UK. It's not surprising that this industry screens up for us. Um, everyone knows that inflation has been running high throughout the world, but especially in the UK. And for a company that sets their price at the beginning of the year and offers uh, a customer an auto policy for the year at, at that set price, but then faces much higher costs to actually settle those claims because of higher cost repairs from parts and labor shortages, higher used car prices, um, you can understand how their margins are getting squeezed. And so for the industry as a whole, 
it went from sort of marginally profitable to about negative 12% margins for the entire UK motor insurance. And we sort of believe that these, we've seen this in other markets, that those companies are able to take price and recover that profitability more generally. But then we also find Sabre within this. So this is where it gets really unique. Sabre is the largest by far non-standard auto motor insurer in the UK. Um, non-standard essentially think of classic or luxury cars, uh, sort of expats to the UK, drivers that are sort of learning how to drive for the first time. Um, this is a, a market that just can't be underwritten with very simple tools. Um, Sabre has been in this market for 20 plus years. They've got the greatest repository of proprietary data about these types of cars, these types of drivers. They're a disciplined underwriter. They've always been profitable. So this is a pretty great, good company and a good business line. But what happens to Sabre is both they're being affected by the same inflation that everyone else is seeing, but also because of two years of lower pricing during the pandemic when people were driving less and therefore auto insurers were starting to take prices down. As prices come down, some of the standard lines players want to grow more and their pricing isn't supporting that. And so they'll sort of sneak into the non-standard market, take on some of this excess risk. They sort of creep in and then when the bills come due, they tend to back out of this market. So right now you're seeing Sabre sort of has lost some of the market share during the pandemic. They're also facing the higher pressure from uh, the, the inflation. And we start to see this now playing out. The, uh, the UK motor insurers are all taking price. You see people pulling capacity out of the non-standard market, giving that back to Sabre or other disciplined underwriters in this space. Um, and you, so we see this, the, that kind of, this Sabre dominates that niche business of non-standard auto, um, similar to what Evan talked about. Um, and therefore you get both that market recover more broadly, but then the special, the second upside from the cyclical pressure on the non-standard auto at Sabre uniquely. Um, and so you've got to take an earnings case. Uh, we think they can double earnings over the, over the next few years that trades less than six times our price to normalized earnings. These are really compelling opportunities in the market today. Matt, I think that's an interesting one just because some of the examples we talk about in niche markets is really something that's someone else can't compete in. And here it's a little different because there are all these other auto companies that could compete in it, but they don't have the expertise in that specific area. So, you know, I, th I think it's a good way of thinking about what makes these guys different, that it's not just it's a different product that someone else can't make, but you can still just be an expert in it without being the largest player in the broader market. Yeah, I think a, a, it's a, maybe a common misconception about small caps is that the larger competitors can just do whatever that they do differently. And this is a really, it's a really unique both set of data and access to the market that they have, that while others can try to replicate the, the process that they have, uh, many can't. And that's not, that, to your point, that's really not uh, just unique to Sabre, but it is uh, maybe common among a lot of the opportunities that we find uh, where some of that fears of competition were able to really go in on a fundamental basis and decide if that's a true fear that we should be avoiding or if it's something where we think they've got a protected market in their niche. As you said, we like these leaders of niche businesses. Thanks, Matt. Um, I think it's great to point out the benefits of, of our fundamental research and really digging into these opportunities. Um, one reaction we've had um, from our commentary on small caps is um, the concern people have 
that the small cap space is more um, exposed to an economic slowdown or recession. Um, is that true? Do you have any thoughts about that? It's a fair concern, and it's one one that we've heard from a lot of people and two that we've thought about a lot. And I really come at it from two perspectives. First and foremost is we're already at these low depressed valuations as we were talking about earlier. So this is already priced in. People are saying, if we're going into an economic slowdown, we should be selling these. But the entry point that we're getting at now is they're already at this big discount. The other part that I really keep in mind is that as active managers, we're finding unique opportunities and we have a bunch that actually have self-help opportunity. For example, if you look over the last few years, we've had a lot of supply chain disruption throughout the world. And when you look at an example is Rev Group. We actually did a podcast on them last year. And one of the interesting parts is they make fire trucks, ambulances, a range of transit buses, and recreational vehicles. And they haven't been able to get all the components they need. So for example, the chassis, the whole front of the vehicle that has the engine in it and the driver compartment, they'll get from Ford or Mercedes or GM, but then they have to get windows and doors and specialty components, ladders from all these other players. Because they haven't been able to get them, it's been a really inefficient production process. And now as the supply chain is getting better because demand for those products is coming down, right? I think we all know that there's been a shortage of cars the last few years after chip shortages. Now, if the number of cars people buy from a passenger perspective come down, then it's easier to make these fire trucks and ambulances. They have more than an 18 month backlog of products to work through that they're not seeing any cancellations. A municipality either needs a fire truck or they don't. And so if the rest of the economy slows down, they may actually be a net beneficiary in terms of the production side. I would also add a lot of our companies have been talking about how much labor turnover they've had over the last few years, and it creates a lot of inefficiencies as you're constantly ramping up new people, competing to get that labor, paying more. And now what they're saying is even if we have to keep paying people more, keeping them out of business for a longer amount of time and not having to train new people is actually really positive. So I think the overall concern you have, Valerie, is very fair of what happened to recession. I think that one, it's largely priced in, and two, a lot of our companies have ways of working through this where it's not as black and white negative as you might fear. Thank you, Matt and Evan, for joining me today. It's great to hear why it's compelling to invest in small cap stocks. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like further information on any of the data we discussed, please see our website, pazina.com. If you look under quarterly commentary, you can see our first quarter 2023 commentary, which discussed the opportunity in small caps. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Pazina Perspectives. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And for more insights on value investing, visit our website at www.pazina.com. That's www.pzena.com. You can also follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter.